Okay, well, we've got some fun things for this morning. I hope you've got your kind of mind really stretched because we are going to dump in a lot of information. <laughs> I was going to try. Uh, we've been doing our series on the church, taking a little break from our normal exposition of Luke. And uh, the elders thought it would be good if I just kind of address some of the basics of the church. What is the church? What we are supposed to be doing as the church? You know, spiritual gifts in the church, serving the church, involvement, motives for involvement, things like that. And this morning we come to the topic of baptism. Baptism. And, uh, you know, you would think baptism is a pretty easy topic. I mean, it can't be that, all that difficult, but it's pretty amazing. Just uh, when you begin to study it, just how much there is to know about baptism. Uh, one of the fun things to do is to get together with other pastors and tell baptism stories. Um, like the pastor who went into the baptismal and uh, baptized somebody who displaced a little bit too much water. Uh, he was wearing waders. And his waders probably had 30 or 40 gallons of water in them. And then he needed to get out so he could preach. The problem is, is he couldn't lift himself out and he couldn't remove the waders because he was in his underwear under there. So he kind of had to be drained before being removed. Uh, Another pastor thought he would save himself some time by not getting wet or um, waiters only to discover there was a leak in a very inconvenient place so that when he did get out, he was then wet all over and uh, didn't have a change of clothes. Um, I know a pastor who was baptizing a pregnant woman at the beach and uh, just as he was putting her under, the water started to subside and uh, he looked up when the rogue wave... Um, blasted him on top of her and he was trying to be kind to her by pushing her up but he didn't know where up was so they just washed up on the beach like a couple grunion and figured that counted so sometimes when you're uh, dealing with baptism you you experience a lot of things you'd never think you would so that's what we're going to talk about this morning you and baptism Around 1520, uh, when the Reformation was just getting started, there was a movement called the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were a group of people. Of course, at that time, the Bible was getting to the hands of the common people. People were reading it for themselves, and they looked in the Bible, and they discovered, hey, the Bible says you have to be a believer and then be baptized. Novel thought. And so they would then be rebaptized by immersion as believers. Well, of course, this caused some grief because at that time, everybody was doing the infant sprinkling thing. And what made it worse is, is there were some groups among the Anabaptists. There was a lot of different people who came to that conclusion, but some groups were clearly heretics. And so, as is often the case, the worst of any group characterizes the whole. And so then pretty soon, everybody hated the Anabaptists because they were all religious fanatics and heretics. This led to many Anabaptist persecutions, and according to Mark Walter's new encyclopedia of Christian martyrs, quote, many Anabaptists were imprisoned and abused until death. They were mutilated, beheaded, drowned, and burnt at the stake. 
in Zurich, Switzerland, Switzerland, where um, Zwingli was, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, a follower of Calvin, he had a big dialogue with them about, you know, infant baptism and how it should be by sprinkling and they just weren't going for it. And they said, look at the scriptures. And when he couldn't convince them, he then decided to banish them from the city. And then they caused this big demonstration in the streets of Zurich and uh, cried out that Zwingli was nothing more than a devil with horns and woe to the city of Zurich for expelling them from the city. This then led to a whole series of persecutions between 1527 and 1532 where Anabaptists were most fatally drowned in the river. Um, They thought that would be a good death for an Anabaptist to bind them hand and feet and throw them into the river so that they would drown. And then not only were the reformers killing the Anabaptists, the Roman Catholic Church were also, in those countries that were controlled uh, by the Roman Catholic uh, Church, both men and women, were they were scourged and burned at the stake and beheaded and uh, their places of worship were burnt down. And in one year, in 1531 alone, there were some 1,000 Anabaptists executed. According to Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church, even Martin Luther uh, forbade Anabaptists to preach in Wittenberg and uh, he tried to get them expelled from the city and didn't have any problem with a decree that came down that all Anabaptists should be uh, cut down with the sword or burn at the stake. Schaff says, quote, throughout the greater part of upper Germany, the persecutions raged like a wild chase. The blood of these poor people flowed like water so that they cried to the Lord for help. But hundreds of them of all ages and both sexes suffered the pangs of torture without a murmur despised to buy their life by recantation and went to the place of execution joyfully and singing psalms, end quote. Well, it's pretty amazing that these people, you know, had in common that, you know, you believe and then you're baptized as a conscious believer in Jesus Christ who wants to make a testimony of their faith. They were killed. Now, granted, some of them were heretics because they believed other things that were wrong. But some of the Orthodox uh, Anabaptists then spread out and started Mennonite and uh, Baptist churches in England and America. Those churches then influenced other uh, community churches, independent churches. And that is the heritage of Calvary Bible Church. So that is kind of our historical roots in the whole baptism realm. And you may be sitting out there and you may be thinking to yourself, well, you know, is baptism all that important? Maybe some of you were sprinkled and you're wondering, I wonder if I should be baptized again. Maybe some of you, um, you know, were baptized by immersion, you know, as a junior hire. And now you've come to Christ later and wonder if you should get baptized again or wonder if you should be baptized at all because you're a Christian, you love the Lord and it's just a ritual. And so why even bother? And so these are the kind of questions we want to look at this morning. And I'm sorry that, you know, I'm going to have to give you quite a bit of information, but uh, I think it'll be good for you to try and sort through all these things in your mind. And just so you can have a big picture of baptism in the church. And what I mean by church is in the greater body of the local church around the world and the different denominations. 
So this morning I'm going to give you three categories of truth about baptism so that you can properly understand it and so you can give God glory by obeying uh, this part of his word. So the first thing I want to do is point out that you need to know the different kinds of baptism mentioned in the Bible. When you look at the Bible, a lot of people make this fatal error when studying baptism. They think that when a Bible, the Bible says baptism, it just all means water baptism. And you can kind of just assume that different texts are referring to baptism. The problem is, is when you look at the scriptures, you discover that there are actually several different kinds of baptism, some literal, some figurative, and that there's even several synonyms of certain kinds. So this makes trying to figure out what the Bible is talking about a little difficult. And so this morning, you're going to have to kind of put on your detective caps and follow along with me as we kind of investigate this. And again, we're just going to do a quick survey. The first place I want you to turn is in Matthew chapter 3. where We're going to look at um, John the Baptist in the early... Um, Years of the gospel in that first century, um, a lot of people don't know, baptism was practiced by more than just Christians. It was a rite that Jews and other groups used as kind of a symbolism of committing themselves to a certain way or taking some vow or something like that. But here we see John the Baptist coming on the scene, Matthew chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Um, Matthew, writing of John the Baptist, uh, says, Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now, just keep your finger there. I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 19, where we discover a little commentary that Paul makes on John the Baptist when he encounters some interesting uh, people um, in his travels. This is Acts 19, verses 3 through 5. He um, is talking to some disciples he encounters at Ephesus, And notice what the text says. Well, look at verse 2. He says to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now that is interesting, isn't it? Here you have some, quote, believers who haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Now, what's interesting here is here we have some people who apparently were baptized by John in the Jordan River. Maybe they were traveling through. They were baptized by John for, as we saw, for confession of sins in the Matthew text. Here we're going to learn a little bit more. But they had never heard the full gospel story about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. They hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So they said, what Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? So Paul then says, verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. 
And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So when you look at this text and you look at the text we just looked at in Matthew, you can turn back to Matthew 3. What you discover is, is that John the Baptist had a unique baptism just for his time as the forerunner. He called people to confess their sins, admit to God that they are wrong, and to repent of their sins, turn from their sins, to prepare themselves to believe in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that's one kind of baptism. We'd call it John's baptism of repentance. Now, let's look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. Here's another kind. It's still in the same context. John, the Baptist, speaking, and he is telling the people about the one he is preparing them to meet and says, as for me, verse 11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does that mean? Holy Spirit and fire. Well, John 1, 32 through 33 and Acts 1, 5 also speak of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. And this is the easier of the two phrases to understand. We already have learned as we looked at the church and spiritual gifts, we learned from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. We learned that every believer upon placing their faith in Jesus Christ is baptized into the invisible corporate body of Christ. And when that happens, receives the Holy Spirit. And so that happens to all believers. That is what is called spirit baptism. So that phrase is easy. But there's this other phrase, fire. What does it mean to be baptized with Fire. Well, there's two good possibilities. One is that fire is used sometimes to speak of cleansing. So, you know, like God is going to burn up the earth and then recreate it. He is going to cleanse the the world, pretty much the whole universe. It's going to pass away, Peter says, with a roar. And then he is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. So sometimes fire is used of cleansing. Other times it's used of judgment. So the question is, What is it used here? Is John saying, after me will come one who will give you the Holy Spirit and cleanse you from your sins, which we know is true from other texts. Or is he saying, one comes after me and you're either going to get baptized by the Holy Spirit or you're going to get baptized in the fires of hell. Well, this is one of those perfect opportunities for a rabbit trail. Because you guys are becoming experts in hermeneutics, right? Um, Bible study principles, how to study the Bible, the rules of interpretation. And you all know that the king of all interpretation principles is... Yes. Um, That's right. And so, if we don't know what the word fire means in verse 11, we could always look at the context. So, let's look at the context. Look at Matthew 3, verse 10. 
See if you can see how the word fire is used here. John says the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Look at verse 12. John has just said that Jesus will come and baptize some with the Holy Spirit and some with fire. And then he says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, remember, we talked about the illustration of the bridge. You're standing on this nice little walking bridge, concrete walking bridge, arching over this nice river. You're standing on top of the bridge. You look upstream and you see the water flowing towards the bridge. You look downstream, you see the water flowing away from the bridge. Now, even though you can't see through the concrete to the water below, being an intelligent person, you know what direction the water's flowing. The same direction. Why? Because both before and after the bridge, it's flowing that way. So it's flowing that way under the bridge too. And so we know by looking at this that the baptism of fire is hell. Judgment. Jesus will come and save some and judge others. That's what the context both before and after tell us. So now we have a couple more kinds of baptism, right? We have spirit baptism and we have the baptism of judgment. Now turn over to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Here's one of those not so stellar texts when the disciples decide to, at least James and John being a little more bold, the sons of thunder, decide to see if they can get kind of a guarantee to sit at Jesus' right hand and left in the kingdom. So they're asking if that can be the case. And then in verses 38 and 39 of Mark 10, Jesus replies. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. They shouldn't have said that. Because we know that he's speaking of his death here. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus expresses his desire to judge Israel for their sin, but says this, but I have a baptism to undergo And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Again, referring to his suffering, his agony, crucifixion, and death. So in this text, baptism is used figuratively to describe being plunged into, you know, the Passion Week ending in Jesus' crucifixion and death. Now, those are the easy passages. Let's look at a couple harder ones. First Peter chapter three, verse 21. First Peter chapter three, verse 21. This is the classic text that those use who believe in what is called, and here's the nickel word, baptismal regeneration, which means 
being saved by baptism. It is a heresy, a form of salvation by works. It's what the Church of Christ teaches. It's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's what the Orthodox churches teach. That you must be baptized or you can't be saved. Now here in 1 Peter 3 verse 21, we have kind of their champion text. Where Peter says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now just stop there. Divorced from its context, it seems to indicate that baptism saves you. I mean, that's what it says. Divorced from its context. But when we look at it, this word corresponding to that just cries out to make us ask corresponding to what? And so we go to the near preceding context, the latter half of verse 20, where we learn in that verse something very interesting. It says, I'll just read the whole verse. It's talking about, you know, if you go up to verse 18, um, it's talking about Jesus died and making the proclamation to spirits now in prison. And don't ask me what that is. We've talked about that earlier another time in a different place. But verse 20, who are once disobedient when the presence of patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water corresponding to that. So what happened in Noah's time? God spoke to Noah. Noah received the word of God. He placed his faith in the word of God. His family placed his faith in the word of God. They acted on that faith. They built the ark. They got in the ark. They were saved from judgment. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So the corresponding is basically say, using the same illustration or the same principle, the same analogy baptism now saves you and he clarifies when you read the rest of the verse not the removal of dirt from the flesh so we're not talking about water baptism but an appeal to god for a good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ you can even take out those two modifying phrases in the middle and you can say baptism now saves you through the resurrection of jesus christ What he's saying is this, you as believers hear the word of God, the gospel, you place your faith in that, you act on that by trusting in Jesus and you escape judgment just as Noah did in his family. That's all it's saying. It's not saying water baptism saves you. Now, if you think, well, that's kind of a hard passage. It's nothing compared to 1 Corinthians 15, 29. So turn there. 1 Corinthians 15.29, this is a real trial here. Just so as you get there, i just let you know that 1 Corinthians 15 is the champion text in all the Bible on the resurrection. This is, this is that chapter where Paul tries to fix the Corinthians who were broken in just about every area of doctrine and practice. And he's trying to fix them by arguing that these people have come to you and these people have told you that the resurrection has already taken place or there is no resurrection and once you die it's over and there's no resurrection of the day. They're not right. And so he spends the whole chapter arguing against that thought. So keep that in mind because whatever this verse means, it's got to relate to the resurrection because it's talking about the resurrection before and after. That's where this dream's flowing. So, 
we look at here in the text and we see verse 29 and we're just going to pluck it out of its context and see what it says. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why then are they baptized for them? Now that is an interesting text. Baptism for the dead? And if you go up to any good Mormon, they'll tell you, yeah, this is why we baptize people in the temple. You know, Aunt Maple, she dies an atheist. You become a good Mormon. You want to spring her out of hell. You go into the temple. You get baptized in her place in proxy. You ever wonder why the Mormons are really into their genealogy? That's why. They have to find out who's in their line so they can get baptized in proxy for them so they can spring them out of hell for not being baptized when they were living. Well, of course, we know that that's not what it's teaching because that would just contradict a whole army of scriptures. The question is, what is it teaching? Well, there's tons of views, too many to even go through. I'm just going to give you the one I think is best. If you don't like this view, you can sort through the whole truckload of other views. But here it is. The, the phrase baptized for the dead can be translated baptized on behalf of or because of or for the sake of. Now, if you understand it that way then the verse takes on a whole little different angle usually in greek when you see the word for it's a translation of this little word agar but here the word huper is used now if you look at it that way what could it be saying otherwise what will those do who are baptized on behalf of the dead well there's pretty only Two ways you can understand that. One is they're baptized in proxy for those people who have died. Or two, they're baptized because of the testimony of those who believed in Christ and were baptized before them. And I think that is why he goes on to say at the end of the verse... If the dead are not raised at all, speaking of Christians who have already believed in Jesus and been baptized and have died, if those people are not going to be raised, then why are they, believers today, Corinthians believer, baptized on behalf of them? This is all Paul saying. Listen, Corinthians, here you are. You're Christians. You're following in the faith of other people who came before you. They believed in Jesus. They were baptized. They died. And now you are following in their footsteps. You have heard their testimony. You have believed in Jesus. Now why are you believing in Jesus? Why are you being baptized if those people aren't going to be raised from the dead? It's foolish because if they are, if, if the Christians who died before you are not raised from the dead, then you're not going to be raised from the dead. And that's what I think he's saying. And if you read the context, um, which we don't have time to do, you'll see that that's probably the best interpretation. So we've surveyed a bunch of texts now, and now you're kind of have, you know, baptism kind overload. I'm sure You're out there thinking, okay, okay, we have baptism for repentance. That's what John did. We don't need to do that. Uh, Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus does that when we believe. 
Okay, we have baptism of fire. I don't want that. I believe. Um, we have baptism into trial and crucifixion. I don't want that. Um, I'm glad Jesus did for me. And then we have baptism for the dead, which is nothing more than a reference to the Corinthians believers being believing in Jesus and being baptized because of the testimony of those who had lived and died uh, in Christ before them, which is nothing more than water baptism, which is the sixth category, which we haven't really investigated yet, but we will. Now, I just tell you that because, you know, you're sitting out there, your head's swimming and you're thinking, man, that's, you know, already my brain's full and we're, we're, we're not even to the end yet. And is, I mean, is that the hard part? No, it gets worse. It gets worse than that. And, uh, you know, we have tangled webs we weave even when we don't want to practice to deceive. And we were able to take some very simple scriptures and really mess them up. And this leads us to our second category. Know the disagreements concerning water baptism. Just within this one little area, water baptism, it's a nightmare. Ever since the church began, like I say, as soon as the apostles died, people started arguing about baptism. And there's been so many fractures and splits and isms and schisms because of this. It's just amazing. You just, you give fallen humanity a piece of string and you think, okay, keep this string straight. And the next thing you know, it's the Gordian knot that cannot be untied except being hacked with the sword. How did this ever happen? And everybody says, well, my string's straight. Well, my string's straight. And everyone's radically different. And so the truth is in there somewhere. And I would love to state each view. I would love to state each, the scriptures that support each view and the pros and cons for each view and which view is best and why. But I don't have time. We're just going to mention them. And uh, you just, and, and the reason I'm doing this is because I know out here we've got some Presbyterians. I know some of you are sprinkled. Some of you come from a Roman Catholic background. Some of you come from a Baptist background. Some of you come from a Mennonite background or, you know, Lutheran background. And you're all wanting me to address your thing. So I'm going to address it, but not very well. (laughs) Now, all the different disagreements about baptism can really be boiled down into two or how you look at it, three different categories. So let's look at these categories. First, there's disagreements over the mode of baptism. So how actually are you supposed to do it? And you've got your sprinklers, you got your pourers, you got your dippers, you got your triple dippers and your immersers. You know, I mean, you've got all these different kinds. You're thinking, man, it, how, how do they get that? I don't know. I really don't know how they you know, arrived. I mean, I can understand some of the history of the church and how certain things were done, but I can't see how they got it from the Bible. I mean, to me, it seems pretty clear. Let's just talk about this. Imagine you're a Christian, you're living in Rome during the times of the Roman persecutions in the, you know, 60s AD, Nero's burning Christians at the stake, he's dipping them in tar, he's feeding them to wild animals for entertainment, he's tying them to the tails of bulls and dragging them through the city until they get their heads bashed out. I mean, he's just, he's wretched. And so to become a Christian in a culture like that, you know that you are putting your life on the line. When you say, I am a Christian and get baptized, you're basically saying, kill me. And all the people knew that. And at that time, people who wouldn't get baptized weren't considered Christians. You didn't even call yourself a Christian. 
unless you are willing to make a public demonstration that you are a follower of Jesus. And so when we look at the scriptures and we see, you know, these these statements about being baptized, realize that during those times, during the Roman persecutions, when you became a Christian, you always got baptized and you always put your life on the line. Well, because people were being executed for their faith in Christ, the Christians then went underground, literally. They went underground into what were called the catacombs. They're still there. If you go to Rome, you can still visit them. It's a whole labyrinth of tunnels. And in these tunnels uh, are kind of like underground burial chambers. They kind of scrawl around. And in the walls of the tunnel are niches. And in the floors, there's holes dug out. And that's where people were buried. And the Christians, because these areas were considered holy sites, a lot of Romans were too superstitious to go down there because the spirits would go down there to worship because it was the only place they could worship in peace without being bothered. There's a problem, though. Because when you're down there in the catacombs, there isn't a lot of lakes and rivers. And so people would want to be baptized. So what do you do? Well, since we don't have any rivers down here and lakes or jacuzzis, then let's just sprinkle them or pour some water on their head and surely that'll be good enough in this situation. So that kind of is probably the roots of where sprinkling and pouring begin to come about as Christians, because of their circumstances, had to follow that realm. Well, in addition to that, there were people who would come to the Lord and let's say you were, you know, 98 years old and you're on your deathbed and you want to be baptized. You're going to take something like that down, carry him down and, you know, plunge him into the icy waters of, you know, wherever. No, somebody's feeble, somebody's sick. Um, what are you going to do? So you would sprinkle them or pour water on them because it was convenient. It was practical though not instructed by the scriptures. Well, by the 17th century, as the English Reformation was just getting started full force in England, the Catholic Church had pretty much convinced everybody that not only were you to be sprinkled, but you were to be sprinkled as an infant, and then you had to be sprinkled by the Catholic Church, or you couldn't go to heaven. That is baptismal regeneration. That salvation is by baptism. Well, of course, this is not what the scriptures teach. At this time, the translators of the King James Version, of course, was, was finished in 1611, had this nightmare because they're trying to please the king. And the king saying, okay, I want you to get a new translation. I want it to be nice. I don't want to offend anybody. So they're thinking, oh, how are we going to translate this word? You know, do we translate the word baptizo? Um, sprinkle and offend all the Baptists and all the people who believe in immersion and mistranslate the word. Because at that time there was a lot of people who knew Greek and they knew that baptizo meant to submerge, sink under, plunge into, or should we translate it immerse and then offend all the Roman Catholics who practice sprinkling and all those in the Reformed Church who do this practice sprinkler pouring. So then they said, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll just transliterate the word from Greek into English, make a new English word, and call it baptize. And everybody can decide for themselves. See, so they were very politically correct. 
And so that is basically why the word baptize appears in your Bible instead of immerse, which is what should be there. Now, these two modes of baptism, sprinkling and immersion, ruled the day. Mostly sprinkling. For instance, in the Westminster Confession, which was written by the Puritans during this time, about 1650, the Westminster Confession reads, quote, dipping of one of the person into the water, that is submersion, is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person, end quote, which is interesting because the scriptures never say that. Uh, I have one study Bible in my office, the first edition has uh, a topical Bible index in the back has uh, baptism and then under baptism a subcategory of infant baptism and it has a reference there which is pretty interesting and you read that reference it's Proverbs thirty thirty, which says do not add to his word or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar <laughs> I mean that is the only reference on infant baptism <laughs> or sprinkling Secondly, you have this baptism by immersion. That is, you take somebody and you plunge them in. The word baptism by, uh, word baptism literally means to plunge under. It was used, um, for instance, when they wanted to dye cloth. Now, if you've ever done like tie dye or something at school, you know, you get your shirt and wad it up and put some rubber bands on it and you throw it in the dye and then you just leave it sitting on the top. No, you get a stick and you plunge it underneath. Um, that's what it means to submerse into. So the reason we practice baptism by immersion is threefold. It's because that's what the word baptizo means. Secondly, baptism by immersion is what symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The person dies with Christ, is buried, and then raises again to walk a newness of life. And third, because that's what we see modeled in the scriptures. For instance, in Mark chapter 1 verse 5, which we already alluded to, and it talks about the people were coming from Judea and around Jerusalem to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And in verse 9 of Mark 1 5 says that Jesus went to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Not by the Jordan, up to the bank of the Jordan, next to the Jordan, but in the Jordan. John 3.23, speaking of John the Baptist, um, baptizing near Anon, near Salim, says that he was baptizing there because there was much water. There was much water. Now, you have to ask yourself, if sprinkling is the proper mode, then why would John baptize near a place where there was much water? I mean, you could take out a lot of people with a gallon of water if you sprinkle. And quite a few if you you poured a half a cup on each one. And so obviously, they were immersed. We see in Matthew 3.16... Of Jesus' baptism, he goes out, he sees John, he walks out into the river, John puts him under, and it says, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. He was in the water, he came up out of the water. Immersion. In Acts chapter 8, verse 38, 
After Philip evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch, they went down into the water and Philip baptized him after they went down into the water. So baptism by immersion is arguably what the scriptures teach because it's what the word means. It matches the symbolism and it's what the examples in scripture teach. So that's why we teach it. Now, there's some among what are called Plymouth brethren who who believe what is what is called triune immersion. Sometimes they're referred to as triple dippers. Where you know how the Great Commission says that we are to be, Jesus says, I want you to make disciples baptizing them in what? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay? So we have triune immersion. And, and it's understandable um, why they believe that. Also, there's this early church document called the Didache, written about 100 AD. And in the Didache, it talks about baptizing. And if you baptize somebody, make sure you baptize them in living water, running water. And if you don't have that, in cold water. And if you don't have that, in warm water. If you don't have that, then sprinkle them. Pouring water over their over them three times, once each in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then by inference, they say, well, that's how they must have baptized too. And so those are the two reasons, primary reasons, why they practice triune immersion or triple immersion once for each name of the triune God. Why don't we do that? I will if you want. Uh, you know, if you say, I want to go under three times, I'll put you under three. But the reason... The reason we don't is this. When Jesus gave the great commission and he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That word name is singular. We learned last week about composite singular, so we know all about that. Um, it's a singular. And so being a singular, all he's saying is baptize them in the one name. Of the triune God. So that's why we do it. And because the scriptures never model. Triple dunking. But if you were triple dunked. You know it's not that big a deal. It also doesn't quite match. The symbolism. Where Jesus died. Was buried and rose again. And so you're kind of having the father died. Buried and rose again. The Holy Spirit died. Buried and rose again. But you could say well they're all one. And you know they're all three. And they're the same God. And so if Jesus did it. The others did it. And so you know there's arguments in that way. Anyways that's just a minor um, type of, of baptism by immersion. So that's the kind of whole history about sprinkling and dipping and dunking and triple dunking. Now what about... The purpose of baptism. Now this, I want you to know, could go on for a long time. But I'm just going to give you kind of the basic general camps. There are those who think that the purpose of baptism is to save people. The Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox churches, um, teach it as the foremost of the the sacraments. Sacraments are these seven uh, rituals, religious rites you have to do in order to be saved. The Church of Christ teaches that you just have to be baptized in order to be saved. For instance, Pope Eugene the Fourth, who became Pope in 1431, decreed concerning baptism, quote, the holy baptism holds the first place among the sacraments because it is the door of the spiritual life. For by it, we are made members 
members of Christ and incorporated with the church. He then goes on to say in this document, the effect of this sacrament is the remission of all sin, original and actual, likewise of all punishment, which is due for sin, end quote. So that's what the Roman Catholic Church believes. You are baptized to be saved. And when you are, it places you in the church and it causes you to have your sin forgiven, which is interesting because then you have to go to purgatory to have your sin forgiven. But that's a whole other topic. The Roman Catholic Church later at the Council of Trent clarified their position in opposition of those who believe what we believe, saying that anybody who teaches that baptism is not necessary for salvation is to be anathematized or considered a heretic and damned to hell. So this is kind of the huge schism that has happened. Now, then we have the Reformed denominations, those who follow in the line of Luther and Calvin and the, the Presbyterians who baptize infants by sprinkling or pouring, but who don't believe that it saves you. So there's just this whole mess of groups and each one baptizing in a different way. John Calvin taught that water baptism was uh, a symbol of the believers being incorporated into the covenant of works, uh, which is never mentioned in the Bible. They just covenant of works. If you get into that system, they kind of form these covenants out of just whole bunches of scripture that never say they're a covenant, but they, they kind of teach this covenant system that all the promises like the Abrahamic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, are you kind of all lump them together, new covenant into one quote covenant of grace, this, the gracious promises of God that, that it's to symbolize that and it was actually a parallelism or replacement for Old Testament circumcision. Now, if you think about this, in the Old Testament, males, eight days old, were circumcised. They were circumcised as an outward sign of an inward heart commitment they were to make later in life as adults. So Calvin's reasoning was baptism replaces Old Testament circumcision and that now we need to baptize, sprinkle, poor infants as infants so that later on they can make a inward commitment to this outward act. See how, how it just works so smooth? The problem is the Bible never says that. But the Bible does say, and the primary text they use is Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, where Paul says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he says, you, upon coming to faith in Jesus, were not circumcised physically, but spiritually. Your heart was cleansed inside by your faith in Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so they say, see, circumcision and baptism are in the same context. It's a replacement. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say it's a replacement. Infants are not mentioned. Sprinkling or pouring is not mentioned. And so if you want to make, say, there's a parallelism there, yes, the parallelism is there. It's there saying that, yes, in a figurative way, not in a physical way, you were to cleanse your heart. If you look in Deuteronomy 10, it talks about they were to circumcise their hearts, that is, repent of their sin, 
So yeah, we are to repent of our sin and be baptized. So that's the only parallelism that really happens. Now, so why do we teach what we teach and what do we teach at Calvary Bible Church? We'll turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Now this text is not talking about water baptism. So you're saying, so why are we going there? Um, Because... It's talking about spirit baptism, but Paul explains the symbolism of baptism so that we can understand what baptism symbolizes from this text on spirit baptism, which applies both to spirit baptism and water baptism. But look in verse 3 of Romans 6, and notice what Paul says here. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. His whole point here is that when you place your faith in Christ, you are figuratively placed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You become crucified with Christ, as he says in Galatians, you die with Christ, and just as Christ was raised, you are raised with him to walk in newness of life. In other words, when you come to faith in Christ, you're put in the church, so start living a different life, okay? So what we teach baptism is for is, one, it's an act of obedience because God commands it. Two, it's a public profession of one's faith and commitment to follow Christ. Three, it is a symbolic act of being united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, and to do so to walk in newness of life. So, that's what we teach, and that's why we teach it. Now, there's another little category of disagreement, which is just going to take a minute. And that is, who should be baptized? Well, there's four possibilities. Believers, unbelievers, those who know what they're doing, and those who don't. That's it. Sounds simple, doesn't it? And if you baptize infants, they're not believers, and they don't know what they're doing. Okay? So... The question is, should we be baptizing? Now, this is what you need to understand. This is a little uh, bit of historical information, but it's really helpful to understand this. Before the Puritans came along, which was about 16, in the middle of the 1600s, before the Puritans came along, societies pretty much around the world didn't, didn't believe in having diversity. They believed in united societies. They didn't believe in what is called composite societies. So you didn't get to be a Lutheran and you a Buddhist and you an atheist and you an agnostic. See, we couldn't do that. You either submitted to the state religion or we're going to kill you. So when different rulers took over, they would force people to, quote, convert as if, you could save somebody by force. Now that would be good, right? We could go up to people on the street and get the gun out and say, repent or you're going to die. And then they go, I repent. Well, you don't have to worry anymore. You're going to live even if you die. And we could walk away and just save people like left and right. Um, it doesn't work that way. But because they had a misunderstanding because of what the Roman Catholic Church taught, people thought that if you could get somebody to be baptized, then you could save them. And so they wanted unified society so it was either convert to our religion or die. Very similar to what you see going on in Islam today. Because of this, many people were, quote, baptized as infants because they couldn't even protest. See that? 
You just get a baby and you baptize him and okay, you're of this brand and you can't change it, man. We gotcha. You're right out of the womb. So that is why infant baptism was practiced for the most part, because it allowed united countries to be united under one national religion. Of course, the Puritans came along and blew that all apart and said, no, we need to give people freedom and not burn people because they're, they don't believe. Now, there are several texts in the book of Acts, such as Acts 16, 14, and 15, and Acts 10, 31, and 34, where, you know, Lydia, the seller of purple fabrics, comes to faith, believes, or Lord opens her heart, she believes, is baptized, and her whole family, or the Philippian jailer believes, and is baptized, and his whole family, and they say, aha, see, right there, infants, where? The text says that those people believed and were baptized and their families believed and were baptized. And it never mentions infants. But that is the closest text you can find, a text of silence. There is no scriptures that talk about baptizing infants or sprinkling or pouring. Okay, so there's enough of that. Now we come to the third category, which is nothing more than questions people have about baptism. And these are just kind of practical things that will help you because you're out there and you're thinking, you know, okay, what what am I supposed to do about this? Okay, why should Christians be baptized? We've figured it out. Because Jesus said so. That's it. Jesus tells you to be baptized. So that works. Who is qualified to baptize someone else? Now, this is a question people have. You know, you have to, you know, have a clergy card and a white collar. You know, you have to go to seminary to baptize somebody. Well, in the history of the church, the church leaders baptize. I mean, that's what we see happening in church history. But there is no scripture that says, you know, thou shall be a leader in the church. Uh, So really, um, since the scriptures don't say we can't take a stand on it. We usually have the leaders baptize people here. That's our practice. The scriptures don't demand that. But they do demand that every believer be baptized. So the important part is not who does it, but that it's done. Third, how do you, how old do you need to be in order to be baptized? Now this is a question that comes up. You know, you've got your son or your daughter, maybe they're, you know, coming into their junior high years, they want to be baptized, and it's like, they're like minimum age, and well, the Bible doesn't say. So here's the criteria that we use. One. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You can articulate your faith. You understand the gospel and you have kind of a changed life or a transformed life to prove that you've come to Christ. That has to be present. Secondly, you understand baptism, what it's for, its purpose, and you want to give a public testimony of your faith in Christ. And if you've got those two down, we'll put you under in a second. Fourth, what if I was baptized as an infant and later came to faith? Should I be rebaptized? You know, Anabaptists. Um, sh- should, should that happen? Well, what do the scriptures say? Believe and be baptized. So, in that instance, yeah. Here's another one. Fifth, what if I was baptized by uh, sprinkling or pouring as an adult after becoming a Christian to make a public profession of my faith? Should I be baptized again by immersion? Well, this is something we don't take a stand on. If you were a believer and then were baptized by whatever mode, um, we would let you use your own conscience to decide whether you should be immersed or not. 
Obviously, immersion is what the scriptures teach and model, but um, throughout church history, many people were sprinkled and gave demonstration of their faith. And so we just tell you, you know, you decide on your own in that one. What if I was baptized by immersion, but only thought I was a believer and then later came to Christ? So now you, you, you think you're a Christian, you then get baptized by immersion, make a public profession of your faith, but then later on you're actually saved, your life has radically changed, and you realize the first time you were baptized the right way, but from a wrong heart, wasn't as a believer. Well, then the same principle will occur. Believe and be baptized. Get baptized as a believer. And seven, what if I was baptized as a believer at another church? Do I need to be rebaptized in this church? No. Sometimes certain churches like the Church of Christ say if you haven't been baptized in a Church of Christ, then you have to be baptized in the Church of Christ because that's how you get saved. No, you don't have to do that. And finally, what if I am a believer? I've attended church for a long time, but I've just never been baptized and I don't really want to. Do I even need to answer? Do I even need to answer? If you don't want to obey Jesus, then don't call him your Lord and Savior. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And you need to look at your life. You need to realize you're a sinner. You need to realize that Christ died for you, that he paid the penalty for sins on the cross, that he commands you to repent and believe in him, to trust only in his work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection to save you. Repent, get saved, and be baptized. Because people who don't want to obey the Lord aren't the Lord's. Because when God saves you, he puts his spirit within you and he causes you to want to walk in his way. I mean, you never do it perfectly. But if you can sit out there year after year and say, I'm not getting baptized, what you're saying is, I'm not obeying you, Lord. So get right with the Lord. Get baptized. So that's it. Sorry about that. That is quite a bit of information. But as you leave here today and you've been baptized as a believer, you know, you might want to just thank God for all those people who died for a certain mode of baptism, the tradition that we follow, the scriptures that we follow. You might want to thank God that that you were not burnt at the stake or drowned in the river because you wanted to give a public demonstration of your faith that you had to hide in the catacombs because a lot of people who believed what we teach and what we practice had to suffer because they believed in believers baptism by immersion let's pray father we thank you for just uh, a great time this morning i know this was a lot of information i pray that each person here would be able to hold on to whatever information that would be profitable for them father if there's people here who don't know you who have never repented of their sins and placed their faith in christ jesus i pray that they would do that this morning they would see their need for a savior, their sinfulness, and Father, flee to the rock, the fortress, the refuge of Jesus. And Father, that they would climb into that ark and be saved from the wrath to come. For the rest of us, for those who need to get baptized as believers, I pray that 
They would seriously take steps to obey you in that area. And for those who um, have not um, been baptized and were thinking that they wouldn't, Father, may you change their mind either by saving them or, Father, just by transformation because of your word. And for the rest of us who have been baptized, may we glorify you and praise you and thank you for those men, for those women, those children, for those people who stood up for the truth and did what was right, even against great opposition. And we praise you and thank you for all that you've taught us. May we honor you by keeping your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.